I mean, I always believed that the best response to a bad argument was a good argument, that the best response to a misinterpreting uh, or misdescribing facts is to set the record straight, not to shout the person down. Welcome to the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. I'm your host, Scott Costin. My guest today is Philip Slayton, a lawyer, academic, and author who splits his time between Toronto and Port Medway, Nova Scotia. Philip is a Rhodes Scholar, former Dean of Law at the University of Western Ontario, and past president of Penn Canada. His latest book, Nothing Left to Lose, an impolite report on the state of freedom in Canada, was published in 2020 by Sutherland House. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. I'm glad to be here, Scott. Thank you. So Nothing Left to Lose is both a wake-up call about our loss of freedom, and it's also an impassioned plea for a rapid and broad-based response. The problem, as you see it, is partly the stereotypically Canadian qualities of politeness and deference to authority. Can you explain how these attributes imperil our freedoms? Well, I can give it a try. I mean, I think one of the cornerstones of any free democratic society or a society that aspires to be free and democratic is a co constant vigilance and constant questioning of those in authority. When I say those in authority, I mean, of course, those in political authority, those who run in, are in government, but also those who run large corporations, senior members of the judiciary, people who mold opinion in various ways. So these are people who are in authority, who typically tell us what to do or what we should do. I think it's essential that the general population be, as I say, vigilant in keeping an eye on these people, in arguing with them, in reporting fully on what they do, and not just accepting as ex-cathedra the pronouncements of these men and women. Once we stop questioning, once we stop criticizing, then we are in serious trouble. Now, in the book, you provide a number of examples of how freedom of expression is threatened in academia, in the legal profession, in the arts, and in society in general. Public shaming, cancel culture, and accusations of cultural appropriation are seen by you as having a cooling effect at best and a career-destroying uh, effect at worst. You write, and I quote, Freedom requires a rejection of heavy-handed political correctness and simplistic ideas of human rights. This has not happened in Canada, unquote. At what point, Philip, do you feel well-intentioned attempts at diversity become heavy-handed? Well, that's, that's a complicated, difficult question. I think, first of all, I think almost all Canadians would be in favor of, in a, in a general way, diversity, tolerance of other groups and individuals, and all the rest of it. So we're not talking about whether or not that is a good idea. It really is a good idea. The difficulty comes when people involved in that movement, often people in these particular groups, decide that they are in some sense immune from criticism, that they are uh, immune from um, any kind of criticism, that they are seeking advantage from their particular status, that anybody who has the temerity to question their bona fides 
uh, is a bad person should be shut up in one way or another. In other words, the whole kind of woke political correctness movement. Um, once that happens, then I think we are in difficulty. Now, I'm just working on another book now, now which is in some, to some, in some measure about the, what I call the age of identity. Everybody now is assuming often very distinct, well-defined, specialized identities. They are defining themselves in a very elaborate and precise way. And that's fine. I have no difficulty with that. But what they often go beyond that and they, they allege, they argue, they maintain that any criticism of the way they're defining their identity is to be stopped, is to be outlawed, that any attempt to invade their identity in any way is similarly to be outlawed. I mean, and, and a good example of this, I think, is the whole cultural appropriation phenomenon and argument, which says, as you well know, that you cannot in any way profit from or adopt or adapt, let's say, artistic endeavor from a culture to which you do not belong. You just can't do that. This is notwithstanding the fact, by the way, that throughout history, <clears throat> great composers, great writers, great artists of all kinds have done exactly that. This is uh, uh, well recognized, but nonetheless, now it is said that cannot be done. And to me, that's a real inf infringement. There are many, but this is one example of a real infringement of general artistic and political, indeed, liberty. In the 20th century, efforts to limit freedom of expression were mounted almost exclusively, in my estimation at least, by conservative elements in society. But that dynamic has been flipped on its head in recent years. Instead of social conservatives leading the charge, it's the so-called social justice warriors who are now seeking to police the thoughts and actions of others. How do you explain this role reversal and what do you think should be done about it? Well, I can't explain it. I mean, I think you're accurate. I think your description is accurate. Uh, but how that flip happened, how the intolerance of other points of view, other ideas, other identities move from the right to the left, I'm just not sure about that. I just don't really understand it. I can't explain it. I can deplore it, and I do deplore it, but I cannot explain it. As for what needs to be done about it, well, what needs to be done is it needs to be resisted however we can in all possible ways at all possible times. I mean, a wonderful example of this, well, it's not wonderful, it's a, it's a very powerful example of this, is what appears to be happening in most universities. I'm kind of old school when it comes to universities. I believe that universities were the one place, certainly a place, the pr predominant place, where any kind of point of view, virtually any kind of point of view, virtually any kind of expression of opinion was allowed and would be debated and be considered. I mean, I always believed that the best response to a bad argument was a good argument, that the best response to misinterpreting uh, or misdescribing facts was to set the record straight, not to shout the person down, not to de-platform them, to use that horrible expression, which seems to have gained some currency. But that's what should happen. But that is now not what is not happening, not just in universities, which is particularly striking that it is happening there, but it's happening just generally. And people are afraid. People are afraid to express opinions. Uh, they're afraid to say something that they think may attract criticism. Partly that's because the criticism is so 
often so violent and ill-conceived and uninformed. I mean, anybody who has an opinion should be prepared to accept criticism. I've certainly accepted a fair amount of criticism in my time, but that's okay. That's what makes the world of ideas go round. Debate, criticism, thesis, antithesis, or to borrow from, from uh, Hegel. But that is not what is happening now. What is happening now is just shutting people down or attempting to shut them down if you don't agree with them. And of course, this is particular, given particular force and power by social media. In your uh, book, in, in uh, Nothing Left to Lose, you lament the loss of a vigorous, independent, diverse, and disciplined press. And you declare the traditional fourth estate all but dead. Is there something beyond the obvious technological changes and loss of once dependable advertising revenues that has placed Canadian journalism at this crossroads? Well, there may be other factors. I think the predominant factor is certainly the rise of social media, um, the rise of the 24-hour news cycle, the ability, supposed ability of people to be instantly informed just by turning on their computer at any time of the day or night. Why would you trundle down to the corner store to buy a newspaper and take it back home to read it carefully over your cup of coffee the way we used to do once? Nobody does that anymore. Very few people do. So I think social media, the availability of other um, media ways of getting information is the most important thing that's led to the demise of the newspaper. But then beyond that, I think there are other factors. Newspapers, particularly the better newspapers, tend to be tend to have a quite a lot of long form articles, I mean, fairly elaborate analyses of the news, what's happening, why it's happening, substantial uh, op-ed component. And I think people's ability to, or willingness to pay attention to long form reporting, long form expression of opinions has become very limited, if it indeed exists at all. What they want is the instant soundbite something they can read in you know just a few seconds not something that requires them to sit down think puzzle try and understand what's being said and then consider whether or not they agree with it do you think there's also a danger in terms of media consumption where we have many people who seem to just seek out the news that they want to read or watch or listen to that's that's within their comfort zone that's within their worldview they never you know a, a a so-called progressive person won't read a, a conservative publication or a so-called conservative won't read a so-called progressive publication. Are we, do we have the ability now to only consume exactly what fits our worldview more so than ever before? Well, this is so-called confirmation bias, right? I mean, you have a point of view and you look around for other people who will tell you that that point of view is correct. You don't look around for other people who will say, no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. It goes back to my earlier point, I think, that there is no longer much of a vibrant, meaningful debate in the field of ideas, or indeed, even in the field of knowledge. I mean, people aren't willing to be challenged, and they're not willing to, to challenge. They're not willing, when presented with an array of facts, to say, well, how do I know that's correct? How do I, where, what are your sources? Why do you say that? There's no longer that kind of engagement in ideas and debate that there used to be. People, yes, people often, for the most part, think trivially. Uh, they look for trivial information, and they look for trivial information, as you suggest, that supports points of view they already have. And that's another reason, perhaps, why newspapers on the whole 
no longer successful. Now, of course, we have newspapers on the left, we have newspapers on the right, we all know that, but they're often or generally not strident in the political views. You know what they are, you know sort of where they're coming from, to use that expression, but they're not strident in it. It's much better to carefully select the, the people who tweet that you want to follow and be sure that all of them are tweeting something that you a, enjoy and understand and that, as I said, confirms biases you already have. Now you raised the alarm and nothing left to lose about the concentration of federal political power in the prime minister's office. And you also cast a light on parliamentary procedures that limit meaningful debate. What would improve the situation in terms of federal governance and how would that help safeguard our freedoms? Well, that's a difficult question, Scott. I mean, in many respects, our system of parliamentary government, I think, works quite well. And I think perhaps in the recent year or two, and particularly in comparison to our neighbor to the south, we've seen a government on the whole is fairly effective, fairly honest and straightforward, that a government that most Canadians can support. I think that's probably true. Um, that's not to say that it couldn't be better than it is. I mean, one of the big, big issues and the issue that I talk about in the book is this, the electoral system. We have, as you know, a first past the post system. And many people, including our current prime minister at one point, wanted or committed to thought a better system would be some kind of proportional representation. The knock against the first past the post system is it basically shuts up minority parties. So you have the Green Party, for example, in our country, which I think in the last election got about seven or eight percent of the popular vote and has I'm not sure exactly how many, two or three members of the parliament. Nothing at all commensurate with the popular vote they got. A number of people have thought this is not correct. And this is not a good, this is not truly democratic. Including our current prime minister, until midway through his first term, he decided that he was wrong. Or maybe he decided that a first past the post system was in his political interests and in the political interests of the Liberal Party. Now, the knock against proportional representation is you, you end up like Israel or you end up like Italy, where there's almost never a majority government, where there's constant, the whole political process is about trying to build a coalition. In Israel, they're just about to have the fourth election in two years. Um, terribly destabilizing, terribly unsatisfactory. So people say, well, first power suppose isn't terrific, but it's better than that. So let's stick with it. And there's some force to that argument. But I think the prime minister also used the excuse that if you have proportional representation, extreme parties may be able to get a member or two elected. So in other words, an extreme left wing or an extreme right wing party might get in. To me, if, if, a, if a party, let's say Maxime Bernier's odious People's Party of Canada, I don't agree with them on anything, but if they have votes sufficient to get a member of parliament or two, don't they deserve to have them? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, a democracy is a democracy is a democracy, right? If enough people vote to elect a representative of the People's Party of Canada, so be it. I think the answer to that kind of fear or the answer to that kind of objection is, let's try and make the electorate as, as well-informed, as well-educated, as reasonable as possible, and then let them choose. And people who are well-educated, well-informed and reasonable are not going to choose, you know, fascist parties to run their country or, you know, Marxist parties to run their country. They're not going to do that. I mean, I'm a great believer in, in, in the, the common sense of a well-informed electorate. 
And if, if you have a well-informed electorate and you let them use your their common sense, then you're going to be all right. Now, just one other comment about your question. Um, I'm not sure that people always realize how powerful the prime minister is. The prime minister is extraordinarily powerful. He can basically, within the sphere of the federal jurisdiction, do whatever he wants. Um, if, and if, if he has a majority government, for sure he can do whatever he wants. Even with a minority, he can do pretty much whatever he wants. Who's going to stop him? The House of Commons isn't going to stop him. The only people who might stop him, and this is a whole other subject of discussion, is the judiciary, using in particular the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But he's a very powerful person. The one odd thing about Canada is, in some sense, the power of the prime minister is mitigated by the fact we're a federal state, and he's only powerful within his federal jurisdiction. Uh, and as we're seeing these days with the whole pandemic and response to it, the provinces still have a lot of power, and the prime minister can't really interfere with that much at all. In the final uh, part of Nothing Left to Lose, which is entitled The Solution, you include a prescriptive citizen's manifesto for addressing the issues you outlined earlier in the book. And you say that we need political leaders in the spirit of FDR and Tommy Douglas, who have big ideas and the ability and the courage to make them a reality. Are there any political figures in Canada or internationally who fit that uh, description in your, in your opinion? Well, I'm not sure I'm sufficiently knowledgeable, certainly internationally, to make that judgment. I mean, I, I have a liking for Emmanuel Macron of France, who I think has faced with a number of very serious problems within his country that he's heroically and uh, heroically indeed trying to fix, but with limited success. Generally speaking, when you look around the world, you're filled with despair of the quality of political leadership. They, they all seem to be not the kind of people that you would hope would be running countries in, very, in a very complex environment. But you're right in what you said earlier. I mean, I'm a great admirer of FDR, and I'd like sometimes to quote a speech he gave just before the 1936 election, uh, when, he, when he was re-elected, which he said, commenting on his initial attempts at the New Deal, I think I, think I quote this in the book, when he said, there are people in this country who hate me what I am doing. And then he said, I welcome their hate. That, that's, that's somebody who has ideas, is determined to implement his ideas, and is not going to be put off by criticism. And of course, Tony Douglas, you know, I think chosen to be the greatest Canadian, another Scotsman who was a great Canadian, um, was a, an idealist who pursued his ideals with incredible tenacity, and was largely responsible for creating the Medicare system that we all love so much. In the manifesto, you exhort the reader to be a good and altruistic citizen. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the words pretty much speak for themselves. Um, I, I think that each one of us as a citizen has an obligation to other citizens that goes beyond any obligation they may have to themselves to help create the best possible society we can we can live in, we can, but we can't create. Um, I don't believe that that living in a country like ours or living in any country come to that. The idea is to do as well as you can for yourself or for your immediate family and devil take the hindmost. It goes beyond that. Now, this may sound very 
unrealistic, um, very theoretical, but I don't think it really is. And I think in this whole pandemic situation that we've been in, you see, you, see, you can see what I'm talking about. It's not enough that each citizen protect himself or herself from the virus, but it's, they're also obliged to protect other citizens from the virus to the extent they can do so. And they will, of course, in exchange, receive protection. It's a reciprocal, complex relationship. Uh, it's not every man for himself. Okay, so moving on from the book, I actually wanted to ask you uh, about the COVID pandemic, specifically some of the uh, public health orders that are out there. Uh, of course, they differ from province to province, but we've seen across the country a number of individuals and business owners who've been ticketed or even arrested for violating these orders. Have you seen anything that concerns you from a legal or ethical point of view? Yes, I have very much. My, now, my views on this have changed somewhat in the course of the year. I wrote an article in the Globe and Mail, I think it was in late May or early June of this year, in which I said that the, the restriction on individual freedoms in this country was being put into effect, were already in effect, and more were coming into effect, was very concerning, uh, was dangerous. I think in that article, I mentioned how when the income tax was introduced in this country during the first world war to raise revenue needed to for the war, it was introduced as a temporary measure, um, only necessary in these those particular circumstances that would be uh, um, stopped, it would be eradicated when the war was over. But sometimes these restrictions on your ability to do things which are, which are presented as temporary, necessary in the moment, end up never going away. So I was very concerned about these things. I was particularly concerned, and you will appreciate this as someone who lives in Nova Scotia, about the restrictions on interprovincial travel were put into place. Uh, my understanding is that we all live in the same country. Uh, I believe that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms gives us a mobility right, right to go anywhere that we want within the country. And yet this was taken away from us. Um, and I was very concerned about that. Um, now, as things have unfolded, I think I've now been persuaded that despite it all, these restrictions were necessary and perhaps other restrictions that went beyond that were not put in place would have been, should have been put in place as well because it was such a national and compelling emergency that the usual analysis, the usual fears, the usual doubts should be put, put aside for the time being. However, getting back to an earlier point, I think the citizenry, you and I and everybody else, has to be very, very alert to and engaged with events as they unfold and has to be very clear that once the situation eases, assuming it does, that many of these restrictions which have to go on the sooner they go the better. Now, I mentioned at the outset that you split your time between Toronto and Port Medway. Port Medway, for those who don't know, is a beautiful seaside community in Nova Scotia. I'm quite familiar with it. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of ongoing projects that you've got there. The first one being the Port Medway Readers Festival, which unfortunately had to be canceled this year. Can you tell listeners a bit about the festival and its evolution over the years? Sure, I can. Uh, the festival started, I think, in 2002. And my wife, Cynthia, and I were constantly walking by a, a building called the Old Meeting House 
which had been uh, originally a church built in the first part of the 19th century. And it was extremely dilapidated. It was on the point of, close to the point perhaps of collapse. And we, we lamented this fact. And then we had this idea, well, let's try and raise some money so this building could be properly restored. And our idea was to start a Reader's Festival, you know, a modest, low-key kind of event, uh, but bring uh, writers that people might want to listen to to the meeting hall and, and charge a very modest amount for entrance to have a sort of a pup-like dinner afterwards at the fire hall, which was modest across the street. And then that way, try and raise some money so we can put a new roof on the building and so on. And this thing uh, sort of took off. I knew that it, we'd been successful when about three or four years later, I happened to be bumped into Margaret Atwood. And she said to me, why haven't you invited me to the Port Medway Readers Festival? <laughs> wow. And I thought, okay, we're, we're doing well here, I thought. Anyway, so it's, it's got ran, run ever since, except for this year, as you say, when it had to be canceled for obvious reasons. The meeting house has been completely restored. It's now in tip-top shape. And the, the, the Reader's Festival has acquired a small, modest place in the whole kind of the pantheon of Canadian literary events. That's excellent. And I wanted to, the, the second Port Medway related project I wanted to ask you about was Seeley Hall. Uh, you and your wife uh, brought that property back to, to health to, for the benefit of the community. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about Seeley Hall and sure. its, its new role in Port Medway. Well, City Hall, Scott, you know, you've been there. I think yeah. I've been there with you. Yes, absolutely. City Hall is a beautiful old building down by the government wharf. It was built, we're not sure exactly when, but around 1850, something like that. It's had a multitude of uses. And again, one of these famous walks. We, we, my wife and I need to start walking, but we kept, kept walking by this building. And we said, look at this beautiful building. It's falling down. It was, was owned by a, an American who'd clearly lost interest in it, whatever interest he originally had. And so we decided we needed to do something. And initially we tried to form a little group of people to do it, but that proved to be too much trouble. So we bit the bullet. We bought the building, not for much, I hate to add. We uh, restored it. And now the ground floor, it's a two-story building, the ground floor is a has a variety of art exhibits through the summer from local artists. I think we had a, about six separate uh, exhibitions showings this past summer. Uh, it's been very successful. It's really given, I think, a shot in the arm to the local artistic community, which is which is substantial and vibrant. And the second floor is going to be a museum of Port Medway life, which should open in this this year in probably June. And then there's one other thing we did, which doesn't attract much attention, but I think in some ways is the most important thing. We started uh, the, the Seedy Hall Oral History Project. And we started, we, we, we had a videographer, we hired a videographer to go around and interview the old members of our community about what, about what life was like back when. We now have 13 of these videos. Some of them are, you can see online. Some of them you have to go to City Hall to see. And by sad coincidence, one of the people we interviewed, there are two videos, just died on Boxing Day. And it gave me in some ways satisfaction to know that even though this woman, Eleanor Seelig, has just died, her reminiscences about what life was like in Port 60 or 70 years ago 
have been preserved. So I think that will become an important historical record as it further develops. Yeah, and, and any listeners that, that would like to, <laughs> to find out more about that project, there's a website, seelyhall.ca, that's S-E-E-L-Y hall.ca. The Port Medway Readers Festival has its own website, portmedwayreadersfestival.com. And getting back to your books, Philip, I've read three of them. Uh, the most recent one, obviously, and also uh, Lawyers Gone Bad and I think uh, Mayors Gone Bad, which are both really entertaining. Where would people find your books online if they were looking to order uh, one or more of your, your titles? All of them. I've written seven books now. I think all of them are available on Amazon. And a number of them, some of them at least, are available from you know, Indigo, independent booksellers and so on. Uh, in, certainly in Nova Scotia, it's not that easy because there's something of a dearth of booksellers in Nova Scotia, which is a pity. <clears throat> Amazon is probably a good, a good place to get them as any. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Philip. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure to see you. 